DiscerningHearts.com presents Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Dr. Reno is the editor at First Things, a journal of religion, culture, and public life. He has also served as a professor of theology at Creighton University. His theological work has been published in many academic journals. Essays and opinion pieces on religion, public life, contemporary culture, and current events have appeared in Commentary and The Washington Post. He's also the author of numerous books, including Fighting the Noonday Devil. This series explores numerous facets of faith and reason in the life of the church and the world. Grounded on the work of giants such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed John Newman, Blessed John Paul II, G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and Stephen Barr, Dr. Reno helps us to open our minds to make the journey to our hearts. Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Dr. Reno. Thank you. When we last spoke, we were discussing St. Thomas Aquinas and his great work, the Summa Theologica, and we were exploring the need to understand St. Thomas and his work and how it's intrinsic in Christian apologetics as far as proposing objections mm-hmm. to certain doctrinal issues of faith and just our understanding of God, but also in the great responses that he provided. Right. We get that back and forth that helps illuminate and deepen our understanding of the truths of faith. And the very first question in the Summa, as we discussed last time, the nature and extent of sacred doctrine. Yes. As you established for us, was essentially the nature and extent of sacred teaching, which encompassed a a much bigger picture than just doctrine or even dogma. Yes. Yeah, the idea of sacred teaching, um, as I wanted to say last time, and the more I think about it, uh, the more I realize how hard it is to kind of put your finger on it. It's the middle ground between the official teachings of the church and what the theologians say. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a kind of, you know, it, I wouldn't say it's like a super sophisticated grasp of the teachings of the church, but it's a kind of uh, intentional, intellectually intentional grasp of the teachings of the church is what he's, he's what he means by the word theology or sacra doctrina. And it's so important, I think, today that St. Thomas be understood as, as relevant for our world, because many of the things that he's addressing are being thrown to us once again by those who would have us believe that God is non-existent, that sure. we've made him up. I mean, all you yes. do is look on the bestseller list right yes. now. The, the so-called that. new atheism, yeah, that uh, scientific culture makes faith impossible. That's a, kind of one claim that we see. As I see it, they're kind of, there's a, there's a certain kind of rationalistic objection to Christianity. There's a kind of social objection to Christianity, and then there's a moral objection to Christianity. So intellectually, people say, well, faith is, it's an act of submission of intellect, and that's contrary to what it means to be a kind of rational person, a rationally mm-hmm. responsible person. That's the kind of intellectual objection. The social or political objection is that faith, you know, it just inflames people with a kind of passion that leads them into conflict. So wars of religion, the Crusades, Inquisition, or in our own day, uh, Islamic terrorism. So you get a lot of folks who think that faith 
troubles the world, it disrupts the world, it leads, leads to conflict. And if we didn't have faith, we just would be much more cooperative. And then the third objection is a kind of narrower kind of moral objection to faith. And that is that in the act of faith, we, we commit ourselves to a kind of supernatural, transcendent uh, purpose to life. And that that really kind of prevents us from getting enjoyment out of this life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that, you know, faith actually diminishes people's happiness by causing them to make all kinds of unnecessary sacrifices. You know, people could play, be playing golf on Sunday morning instead of going to church or fasting during Lent or um, or accepting, you know, traditional Christian sexual morality. And so there's lots of ways in which people can feel like, gosh, you know, faith is a kind of diminishment of life. Mm-hmm. So I think all three of those. Now, typically today, we're looking really only at the uh, intellectual objections to faith in a, in a kind of broad term, you know, like, is it really reasonable to be thinking about God is kind of the question that's, that St. Thomas is asking here at the very beginning of the Summa, which makes sense. It's an intro class in Christian thinking, Christian doctrine. And so he wants to kind of engage his students and say, well, should we even be doing this? Should we be sitting in a lecture hall and thinking about the nature of God? Or is this a kind of impossible, kind of bogus project? So important that we take a look at this, the way that St. Thomas sets this up, because as you were stating the objections to a faith in general that is coming forward today, there is a desire to want to respond to them quickly. But when it comes to these type of issues, when you're delving into the mysteries of God, it's not so easy to have that fast, quick answer, is it? That's a great point. And I think that it's important for us when we read St. Thomas to realize that there were very few doubters in his day. And so he didn't think of objections to faith as things that needed to be responded to in the way that we do in our time. Instead, he thought of these objections as opportunities for deeper insight. So one finds in the Summa that he's not always telling us objections that people are whispering on the streets of Paris in the 13th century. Instead, he actually goes out and tries to find objections because what better way to understand the truth of something than to test it against objections? And not test it in the sense that you're ever going to reject it, but testing has a kind of meaning also of proving. To prove something, if you prove gold, what you do is you take out the imperfections. And so these objections can help us deepen our faith. They can help us purify our faith by helping to clarify for us what it really means to believe. And that's my point about what he thought Sacra Doctrina or Sacred Doctrine was really all about. It's about allowing our minds to be ever more fully shaped towards the purpose of fellowship with God. In that first question about the nature and extent of that sacred doctrine, sacred teaching, in Article 1, we talked about do we need theology? Article 2, it talks about is theology a form of rational inquiry? Right. Now, rational inquiry is kind of my way. The word there is scientia or science. And uh, these days, we tend to think of science as, you know, physics, chemistry, and biology, the natural sciences, the so-called hard sciences. But in Latin, the term really means any form of disciplined rational inquiry. And so I like to think, don't say is theology a science, because that creates 
a kind of false narrowing. But instead, I ask the question, I think what St. Thomas is driving at here is we want to say, is theology a form of rational inquiry? Is it a kind of genuine, disciplined use of the intellect? And that's a question very relevant for today, because that's exactly what people say today. I mean, that it, it, it's not oh, sure. something that is rational. It's just something that, it's an emotion. It's something in... Well, there's two ways of thinking. One is that, oh, it's just an emotion. It's a matter of feeling. Faith is a matter of feeling. It's a kind of effusion. Statements of faith are kind of effusions of romantic sentiment, you know. Uh, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of Christians who, who like that as an explanation, because what it allows them to do is it allows them to affirm what I call the double truth theory. The double truth is that modern science teaches us objective truths, but religion gives us subjective truths, or modern scientific culture gives us objective or truth, but religion gives us meaning. And so anybody, anytime you hear people talk about religion as giving meaning, in effect, there's, there's, they're conceding that it's not a form of rational inquiry. Instead, it's a kind of potent existential force rather than ideas and thoughts that can be analyzed and um, reflected upon in the same way that we analyze and reflect upon concepts of space and time and physics or something like that. It occurs to me that when you do that, it's almost like splitting the atom, isn't it? I mean, you really... well, it's a very, it's a very um, popular view to hold because what it does is it releases the tension between being a modern person, 21st century, we live in a very complex society, a pluralistic society. And it's very painful to feel the tension between your faith and all these intellectual achievements of the modern era, uh, historical study, scientific inquiry, biology, evolution. The list is long and, and uh, uh, for and different for all of us, but it's quite extensive. So what better solution than just to say, well, oh, that's just about something different. So we divide. And, into, and then that, uh, that kind of makes a peace between what we believe about the world and what we believe about our, the fate of our souls. And for St. Thomas, that's totally unacceptable, mm -hmm. um, that uh, what God does in Christ encompasses all of reality and it has an effect on what we believe about, about everything. Now, the devil's in the details, isn't it? Yep. Or at least the angels are in the details. <laughs> uh, and that is to puzzle out exactly what is the relationship between science and faith. And that this, is this, the question of the this, day right now, isn't Right, it? it is the question. And this article on whether or not it's a form of rational inquiry helps get us, help, helps us, just introduces some thoughts that will help us with that question. What is the relation between science and faith? We'll return in just a moment to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno. This is Chris McGregor. The work of discerning hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. A teaching from St. Paul from his letter to the Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments. For because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient. So do not be associated with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For light produces every kind of goodness and righteousness and truth. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitless works of darkness, 
rather expose them, for it is shameful even to mention the things done by them in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Watch carefully, then, how you live, not as foolish persons, but as wise, making the most of the opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not continue in ignorance, but try to understand what is the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk on wine, in which lies debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and playing to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts. We now return to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. The first objection that St. Thomas comes forward with essentially is a rational inquiry begins with self-evident or empirical verifiable principles, but theology begins with revealed truths accepted on authority. Therefore, theology is not a form of rational inquiry. Yeah, you know, this is when when I teach apologetics, this is always right there with the students. They're saying, well, but a rational inquiry proves the things that it teaches, its truths. And theology doesn't. It accepts them on the basis of the authority of the church. And so how can you possibly say, Dr. Reno, that theology is a form of rational inquiry? So, yeah, this is really very living and present objection. And certainly, you know, the Daniel Dennett's and the Richard Dawkins, this is the fundamental point that's underlying their objections to Christianity, their critiques of Christianity, I think. The second objection that St. Thomas puts forward is rational inquiry seeks the general principles that explain reality. Theology concerns the specific events in salvation history. Therefore, it is not a form of rational inquiry. Well, yeah, here, here's a kind of assumption that we make. Let, let's think about it. How do we explain things in modern culture? Well, we explain things by framing them in some sort of larger context. We give the historical forces that are at work, or we explain things in terms of uh, psychological patterns, or we explain things in terms of the laws of nature. And so an event occurs, an accident occurs on the street. Well, we want to explain it not by simply re- re- recounting how it happened, but to look at the underlying root causes of things. And when we look at theology or uh, sacred teaching, we see that it really concerns what St. Thomas calls the sacred events. And what he's talking about is salvation history that culminates in Christ, who's a particular person that lived at a particular time and whose death on the cross has a kind of saving significance for the entire world. And that doesn't seem to explain anything because that's weird. 
We're going to explain reality by recourse to a particular event in human history or a particular person is a deeper truth than general truths about the human condition. So this is a puzzle. It has been a puzzle in Christian thought. In Greek philosophy, um, the universal is more, more important, more powerful, more, more true than the particular. And ever since Christianity's engagement with, with Greek philosophy, it's struggled to try to explain how the particular person, Jesus of Nazareth, is more fundamental to the truth of the cosmos than any general universal principle. So just in summing up, the essential objections to that premise is theology, a form of rational inquiry. The first would be that, again, rational inquiry begins with self-evident, empirical, verifiable principles, but theology begins with revealed truths accepted on authority. Therefore, theology is not a form of rational inquiry. The second is that rational inquiry seeks general principles that explain reality. Theology concerns the specific events in salvation history. Therefore, it is not a form of rational inquiry. Now, the overall response to those two objections then would be? Well, he looks at this and he wants to sort of say, now, are we really right about the way that rational inquiry works? In other words, there are two approaches to objections. One, you say, oh, that's wrong. No, theology can prove its fundamental assumptions. Or, you know, it can prove the teachings of the church. Or one can go and say, oh, no. In fact, Christ is a general principle and not a particular person. But St. Thomas doesn't want to do that because he knows that, that the objections have that kernel of truth in them. Mm-hmm. And the kernel of truth is, is that, the ch- that the church teaches what it teaches on the authority of revelation and not on the basis of what reason can prove. And secondly, that the teachings of the church are fundamentally tied to the particular person, Jesus of Nazareth. So he knows he can't sort of undermine the objections that way. So instead he wants to go at the other assumption the objection makes. These these objections make assumptions about what rational inquiry is. So he looks at it and says, huh, now do all disciplines prove the truth of their assumptions? And he makes some observations about mathematics and physics and music and geometry and all that kind of stuff that are hard for us to understand because they have to do Mm -hmm. with different theories about how these things work. So the analogy I use instead is engineering and physics. Now, in physics, physicists work as hard as they can to prove their assumptions through experimental processes. But the engineering professors accept the authority of physics and then teach their students how to reason about building bridges and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so theology is more like engineering than it is like physics. Theology is, is, if you will, kind of, all right, how do we build life and community to, if you will, bridge our way towards God, assuming the truths about the soul and about human destiny that are revealed to us in Christ. So revelation takes the place of physics. Theology takes the place of engineering. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So it does, because that really goes to the core of that whole faith and reason, that somehow you cannot reason. The fallacy here in the objections is that only forms of thinking that prove their premises count as rational. But this is obviously not true in our lives. In other words, we can think rationally about things that we, we do it all the time, where we don't prove our premises. But instead, we think in consistency with those premises. We think we draw out arguments on the basis of those premises. We analyze those premises. 
so this idea that we can kind of sort of build, you know, uh, the bridge, if you will, towards God on, on the basis of uh, engineering principles that we can only know through God's revelation doesn't make the project of building the bridge any less kind of complicated and doesn't mean it requires any less kind of intellectual discipline to, to do that. So I think this is an important illumination of what it means to, to have a rational project. So in response to that first objection then, as you said, theology is more like engineering. Yeah, it's more like engineering than it is like physics. So the objectors are right. Some disciplines are focused primarily on making sure that they can rationally prove their premises, but other disciplines are more trying to apply them. And so theology applies the principles that are revealed in Christ. Now, your response to objection to? Yeah, well, St. Thomas, what he says there is that, to remind us, the objection here is that Christ doesn't explain anything, or theology explains nothing, because Christ dependent on particular truths of, about Christ. And I think St. Thomas here, he tends to be invested in a, this kind of Greek view that the universal is somehow more powerful than, than the particular. So here I find myself not thinking that his response is altogether adequate because he, he tends to say, well, oh yes, of course, theology does depend upon salvation history, particular events in history, but that's what God provides us as a kind of pedagogy, like um, as a teacher, you might draw examples on the board mm -hmm. in order to um, help the students understand the general concept. And so by illustrations or analogies, you guide the student towards this general truth. And so St. Thomas seems to say that that's basically what salvation history does. But I, I think that the classical tradition is, I don't think that's consistent with uh, the affirmation of Jesus as the Son of God, indispensable and unsurpassable and not an illustration, but the actual fundamental logos or rationality of the, of the whole cosmos. We don't have to agree with everything that St. Thomas <laughs> says. In fact, I think it's a mistake to be overly slavish. I mean, I demure on this point with trepidation because he was obviously much more brilliant than I could ever hope to be, and more learned, uh, and, and more faithful than I could ever hope to be. But he was a finite man, and so as a result, he's a saint of the church, and therefore uh, deserves our kind of attention and, and so on. There's no reason to think that every, every scintilla of the Summa is uh, without error. The beauty of the Summa is that it helps train the brain to think, but also think with the mind set on God, that you can in that objection and then the response to that objection to seek out all the different cracks that may be in an argument. I am actually very interested in, in this problem. Theology doesn't explain anything because it really ultimately wants to, it wants, I, do, I think it does, theology wants to explain our lives and the world in the light of Christ. And that seems to be counterintuitive because it, if you will, it's kind of collapsing things into that particular person. So you, contemplation of the cross or contemplation of the Blessed Sacrament is a kind of mental act of compressing your life and your knowledge into that incredibly concrete reality. And people think, well, that's exactly the opposite direction. Aren't we supposed to take concrete and make illustrations of them to get to these universal truths? So it's moving in exactly the opposite direction that we often assume. But I'm not sure that that's really true. So we read a novel. What are we getting out of novels? Why is it that the stories that we read in novels or biographies are so powerful to us and they seem to illuminate reality for us? How does that happen? Because novels don't tell us 
if you will, psychological. They're not like psychology textbooks, but they seem to illuminate the human condition for us in a very powerful way. And so I'm not convinced that we, in our own sense of what, say, we really achieve in our university education, don't have moments that are somewhat like that kind of moment of contemplation of the particularity of Christ, where we see particularity as having a kind of power, the reality of one person's life. You know, you read your Jane Austen and the characters interact and you feel like you can see things more clearly now Mm -hmm. about family and about what it means to sort of uh, struggle to uh, find happiness in, in this world. Wow. And you can put those books down and they can be very powerful to you and hold them very close to your to your heart and think and be very grateful for the insights that you've gained from them. So theology, I think, is based on, yes, revelations of what God's mighty deeds in history, Abraham's covenant, covenant with Moses on Sinai, Babylonian exile of the Israelites, Christ as the fulfillment of the messianic hope of that whole history, and then his death and sacrifice as a fulfillment of the sacrifices in the temple. All these things are they're like super concentrated onto you know the history of relatively you know a tiny little part of the human species, the people of, of Israel, the, the children of Abraham, and then even concentrated more into the one person, Jesus of Nazareth. So it's a kind of uh, takes that sort of reading of the novel approach to try to illuminate reality and makes it even more uh, intense and more powerful. It's interesting when you use the analogy of the the reading the Jane Austen novel and that in reading that for the individual, is that an experience of maybe, on a, again, on an individual level, of that divine accommodation, that something is being revealed to us even on that in that virtuous sense, something that we encounter, a practice or a lack thereof, depending on the character or the situation you're encountering in the book. But, I mean, is that... And in essence, what we're trying to delve into? Part of what my way of thinking on this question about what are we doing in theology when we focus on Christ and his particularity? I mean, it's faith-seeking understanding. It's not just, when I read the Jane Austen novel, I just simply accept the gift, if you will, of insight. Because it's limited, you know. And moreover, nobody claims that Jane Austen's novels are the key that will unlock the mystery of human existence. Mm -hmm. So we just take what we can get from it. And we, we're, we're grateful for it. But the claim about Christ is that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And so as a result, suddenly now we have theological questions. Now, well, why would God do it that way? You know, why doesn't God reveal the truths of human existence as propositions that we could teach our students? Like, like I say, like the psychology textbook. Put it, put it in bold and have tests at the end where students could absorb it all. What's going on there? Why doesn't, why doesn't God broadcast, if you will, and publish mm-hmm. his principles? Why does God reveal this transformative truth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, my way of thinking is that forces this question. If God wants us to enter into fellowship with him as individual persons and not as human beings generically, then he has to encounter us in our particularity. So you know, I can give reasons why I married my wife and so on, but I have to be careful because the more, the more powerful the reasons become, the less important she becomes. She becomes an instance. She becomes, oh, I was looking for this kind of person, and I go through the list, and I found one of them, right, and mm-hmm. not her. Mm. And so the less I can say about why I fell in love with her, actually the more important she becomes. 
now. And so God's engagement with us in this kind of irreducible particularity may be a necessary way to get access to us in our irreducible individuality. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Reno, this is all the time we have for this particular segment with St. Thomas Aquinas, the Summa, and Christian Apologetics. Until next time, then, thank you, Dr. Reno. Thank you. You've been listening to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. R. Reno.